0: Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome Welcome to to Unemployed Unemployed Workers Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer
1: Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30 p.m.
0: Here on 3CR Community Community Radio.
1: Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
0: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone everyone in in our our community
1: has value. Hey Kevin, how are you? I'm good Anne, I'm good. Uh, uh, Thank you to Jacob for his Friday rave. um, It wouldn't be Friday unless Jacob had a good rave. I think you mentioned last time we were talking um, something about uh, having Bill Mitchell on again this week.
0: Yes, we had a nice long chat with him. So this is the second part of our talk with Bill. And I have to admit, I did get pretty excited talking with Professor Bill Mitchell because it's not often you get to ask somebody who has come up with a paradigm-busting idea how they managed to come up with that idea.
1: Yeah, we're talking with Bill Mitchell about his uh, universal job guarantee, which is a scheme that would turn uh, unemployment uh, on its head. Unemployment benefits is a stabilising scheme for the government, uh, and the scheme that Bill has is also a stabilising scheme, but it reverses the dynamic and turns unemployment into an asset rather than treating the unemployed as something that needs to be punished. The job guarantee. guarantee! (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, of course, on this show, we like to talk about macroeconomics. And one of the things I'm starting to understand about macroeconomics is that it has like this quest of the holy grail, which is how do you manage both unemployment and inflation. Now, if I was to say to you, do you want to have a nice long talk about unemployment and inflation, would that, would that float your boat, Kevin?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, look, yeah, but what we're trying to make these conversations uh, more interesting because it is tedious to talk about this stuff, but it's also important because it affects everybody.
0: When you think about what employment is, what is it? It's like everybody being able to get by in a shared economy. And what's inflation? Inflation's like the price of money. And so they're two fundamental things that we all live with. And it was Bill who who discovered the holy grail of how can you have both full employment and low inflation. Nobody else up until that time, including Keynes or any of the monetarists or anybody, had figured that one out. So it was really interesting to talk to him about how he came up with the idea.
1: Excellent. Well, this sounds like uh, something well worth listening to. So shall we uh, flip over to the uh, the interview we did with Bill a number of weeks ago and uh, let him explain how he came about this idea of a universal job guarantee and the relationship between unemployment and inflation?
0: I think I speak for both Kevin and myself that we're very excited today to be able to spend some time with Professor Bill Mitchell and speak a little bit about what's going on with the economy at the moment. For those of you who don't know Professor Mitchell, if this was a show about psychoanalysis, this would be like having Sigmund Freud in the chair. (laughs) So it's a real thrill for us to be able to pose some questions. I'll just say a little bit about Bill's background. Bill Mitchell is a professor of economics at the University of Newcastle where he is also the director of the Centre for Full Employment and Equity, otherwise known as Coffee. So you've got to love an organisation that puts full employment and equity front and centre. Bill is very in demand as a consultant and he runs around talking with the Australian government, trade unions and community organisations, as well as international organisations, including the European Commission and the Asian Development Bank. Most importantly, from our point of view, Bill is a founding intellectual in the formation of a school of macroeconomic thought known as Modern Monetary Theory or MMT. If you would like to keep up with what Bill's doing currently or some of his past work, I highly recommend that you check out his blog. It's one of the most widely read economic blogs in the world and you can find that at bilbo.economicoutlook.net. That's B-I-L-B-O.economicoutlook, one word, dot net. So, Bill, welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Bill, you've achieved decades now of research into macroeconomics and labour market studies and econometric modelling and economic development. And I was wondering if you could recap for us your own intellectual journey as far as modern monetary theory goes. And the reason I'm asking that is because I get the feeling that some of the questions that you've wrestled with are very similar to those that arise for us lay people when we first learn about modern monetary theory. You know, you might go from how do we manage inflation to how on earth does such bad macroeconomics hold sway in the national discussion, and then even to wondering about how propaganda works. So I was wondering if you could describe your own journey with those questions.
2: For me, I started thinking about economics when I was a teenager. I grew up in a housing commission estate in Melbourne. My uh, father was a minimum wage worker. He would like a lot of men of his era, had been affected by the Great Depression uh, in the 1930s and then immediately as a young man in his late teens went to war and came back from the war in not great shape, like a lot of the men of his generation. And so we grew up in relative poverty, but the thing that held our family together were two things. One was that my father could work always, even though he had his own difficulties, because there was full employment. In those days, there was no underemployment. If unemployment went above 2%, then the federal government would be in deep political strife. Such was the value we placed upon full employment. The other uh, very important thing in that era for me and my brothers and kids on our estate was the reach of the welfare state. At the start of each school year, we were given free books and uh, pencils and paper and all the rest of it. At different periods of high school, we were able to get merit-based scholarships, which gave my mother small amounts of money. Every cent mattered in those days. I didn't understand any of it, of course. I was a kid, but they were really important things holding communities together and reducing economic inequality, you know, across generations. Even if we were born into really poor circumstances, we could still stay at school and go to university and become high-income earner, middle-class people. There was true social mobility in those days. In my teens, I guess, I started to try to work out what that was all about. And uh, I used to haunt the international bookshop in Elizabeth Street. It's not there anymore. It's up at the Trades Hall. But I used to shoot through from school, catch the train into the city with my paper round money, lie around in the uh, bookshop reading Marx and Engels and Hobbes and Lenin and Trotsky, And that gave me the starting of a real intellectual foundation for what was to come. And I remember the first time... I, I pinched my brother's pushpot because we only had one pushpot among the kids. I rode along the old track along Gardens Creek into the city, along the old rail line, and uh, riding along the railway line, you traverse Haynton and Turak and South Yarra, and you go past, I guess it's Scotch College, is it? And, you know, I couldn't believe the number of football fields that i saw there my school (laughs) was just a typical relatively under-resourced state school for a young kid that was an amazing journey i tried to work out what that was all about because i i saw inequality uh, and so i was a radical in terms of economics when i went back to university after some disruption because that early 70s was an incredibly disruptive period for radicals. There was the whole Vietnam thing, mid-70s. Phil Lynch was the treasurer and started the raise again, and uh, so unemployment started to skyrocket. So I said, I won't go back and finish uh, music and philosophy and maths and those things. i decided to do economics. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So I came into economics with that radical bent, uh, very well read as a teenager. And because I'd done maths, the orthodox economics that was being taught at the time was incredibly easy. Now, most of the kids found it really hard because of the formalism that was involved, but I found it really easy because I could do the maths. And as a consequence, I had plenty of time on my hands, and so I could then go on my further journey of, of the literature. I think that gave me an incredible grounding on a broad base of social science understanding. Uh, I knew the literature in history and psychology a bit and um, politics and philosophy and those things, as well as the economics. It's because I had plenty of time on my hands. And the other point I'd make is that I wasn't exactly a normal university student because most university students came from the middle class. Uh, There were very few true working class kids at university in those days. Not many kids from my high school actually went to university. I used to go to political economy conferences Around that time, as a student, there was such a thing called political economy conferences. And it was about the time that the left started to get sucked into this idea that globalisation had reduced the power of the nation-state. So this became a discussion in the 70s that, oh, because capitalism had moved from industrial capital to finance capital, the left was starting to be seduced by this notion that, oh, we can't be Keynesians anymore and use fiscal policy to maintain full employment because we had to obey the demands of the global financial markets. If you think about when the first real anti-deficit statement came out from a federal government in Australia, it wasn't the phrase years; it was the last budget, in inverted commas, of Bill Hayden, Whitlam's last budget. In that particular document you can read where they started to talk about the dangers of deficits and how inflation was the major problem and we had to accept higher unemployment to discipline inflation and that was the antithesis, in my view, of sensible government policy. So then these political economy conferences started to be dominated by discussions about identity, uh, gender and race and uh, sexuality don't get me wrong, we've made great gains in understanding those issues, identity-type issues, and most of us are more tolerant and understanding and have better human empathy as a consequence, but that uh, Marxian class was no longer considered to be at the forefront of radical or progressive or heterodox, whatever you want to call it, thinking. Equally, those type of forum, started to talk about mythological issues. and I can't tell you how many sessions I sat through where every second word was ontology and hermeneutics and all of this stuff. And, And these things are great intellectual challenges and very important. Philosophy of science is an incredibly important thing, but not at the expense of the main game. As a young academic, I really wanted to develop a body of work that would represent a true contest to the mainstream. Because I was interested in macroeconomics and the macro side of labour markets, I realised that if we were going to fight back from a progressive perspective, then we had to deal with all of this deficit mania and all of this nonsense about governments running out of money and debt and not being able to do anything about unemployment And all of these uh, orthodox ideas that full employment had suddenly become 7 or 8% unemployment rates when previously we knew it was uh, well under 2%. So every time I'd write an essay or in my master's thesis and then in my PhD program, I really wanted to develop work and research and writing to create a contest.
0: That's quite a self-conscious, intentional program you'd set yourself, so you had a an understanding of what was going on in the contemporary discussion around macroeconomics.
2: I'd just say that it was obvious. that Here we've got unemployment rates at elevated levels. Uh, Underemployment was starting to become a problem. The whole shift to precarious work was beginning. Inequality was rising. By now we're up to uh, Hawke and Keating and we've got what I call the destruction of the centralised wage-fixing system and the abandonment of productivity wage cases, which gave the low-wage workers a chance to share in national productivity growth, which they don't get now. So it was pretty obvious to me as a progressive left person that we needed to do something to address this, to contest some of these issues, and to work out the logical problems of these propositions that were being taught in universities and rammed down students' throats and... It was just so antithetical to me and my value system that we would just lie down and accept a body of work that punished the victims of a systemic crisis, that being the unemployed. And I saw it in my own family. My father lost his job finally when the full employment era ended and that devastated him. It just devastated all those men that lost their jobs. I just thought, well, look, the role of an intellectual is to do something about this, and uh, that was my motivation. I was more interested in music and philosophy and history and maths, but I felt that I better devote my time to learning economics because that was the main game, that if we didn't understand economics and if we didn't have progressive voices in economics, then we were basically uh, dead.
1: In the uh, 70s, during that whole tumultuous uh, Whitlam era, it was a time in history where anybody who had progressive radical tendencies would have been outraged. And so it sounds to me like if you were a student at that time, it would trigger a reaction.
2: As I said, a lot of the progressives really abandoned the main game. And as a consequence, they started to accept all sorts of notions that I couldn't accept, like that we had to live with high unemployment. Because, going back to my childhood i'd seen the a massive advantages for communities who were relatively disadvantaged of having full employment that really binded those communities together and stopped them completely fracturing, kept families together and gave kids the upward mobility who were born into disadvantaged circumstances and so, for me, the main game was full employment and equity, and that's you know that's what coffee's about <laughs> so That's been my driving force.
0: I got to ask Kevin, how many young school students would wag school and then run off and read Engels and Marks. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs>
1: it's, it's interesting because Bill's experience, um, uh, I, I relate to a lot. My dad uh, was also, uh, came back from the, the Second World War. Uh, it turns out Bill was living just up the road from me. I was a bit further down the uh, Gardner's Creek uh, than he was. I have very uh, strong recollections uh, of the same story he's talking about. And what interests me is that those post-war uh, years, uh, the 50s and the 60s, were far more socially inclusive because they'd just come out of World War Two. I think governments were a lot more aware that they needed to look after uh, soldiers who'd returned, um, and a lot of them were damaged psychologically and physically. Uh, and, and there was a lot more social awareness and social inclusiveness. I think that if A parent can stay home and look after kids if they've got the option. I think that's a marvellous option to have, but it's not an option we have these days because everybody has to work so hard just to to get by. For instance, here's here's a contrast. I was speaking to my brother the other day. My brother runs a small business. I was speaking to him about the increase in Newstart, now called JobSeeker, how it's been doubled and how that's kind of like an admission from the government that the previous rate of start was impossible to live on because you can't survive on, on that, that pitiful allowance. So they've had to double it, uh, and that's a good thing, and it should stay there. They're going to try and wind it back, but it should definitely stay there. Now, he's a, he runs a small business, and he said, oh, look, yeah, um, except I've got a woman working for me, and uh, she's quit her job because uh, she can afford to stay home and raise her three kids, and so that's no good. And I said to him, well, no, that is good. And he goes, no, because, you know, I wanted to work for me. And and he left shortly after that. I think he took a tactical retreat. Now, my brother's not a bad guy. He's got something of a social conscience, and he cares about the environment. But it's now normal for him to think that it's more important for him to be able to screw somebody down so that he can keep his business going and, and keep his profits up than it is for a mother to stay home and raise her three kids.
0: We forget how much the norms do shift and in that post-World War II period that you're talking about, everyone had just come out of sharing a common experience like we're sharing now. We're all sharing this experience of being in lockdown and they'd all come out of this experience of fighting the common enemy. So I think there was much more cohesion and, and a sense of looking out for each other and so that w- was... That was reflected in the economics, which was that the population expected to have full employment. And by full employment, that meant zero underemployment and about 2% unemployment, which is called frictional employment, which is just people who are between jobs. And now we define full employment as somewhere between four and six percent, which is just uh, putting hundreds of thousands of people on the scrap heap.
1: And that's done so just to keep uh, downward pressure on wages. We're we're now prepared to sacrifice the, uh, all these people in our community and and have life unnecessarily hard for them just to keep downward pressure on wages. So people like my brother can maintain his profits. To me, that just seems wrong. And especially when we have options. And today, that's what we're talking about: uh, are the options that are available so that um, so that the economy can better reflect a society that we want to live in. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet,
0: www.3cr.org.au. I'm a
1: Christian neuroscientist. featuring local band AVG this week. That was off their latest album, Feral, a song called Christian Neurosurgeon. Now let's continue our interview with Professor Bill Mitchell where he discusses the relationship between unemployment and inflation.
2: I can trace my first involvement in the current body of work back to 1978. At that stage, I was doing agricultural economics, a fourth year at Melbourne University. I've got a very clear memory of the day It was one of those freezing cold winter Melbourne days and the lecture theatre was on uh, Royal Parade and the lecturer was teaching us about the uh, wool price stabilisation scheme. And this was a scheme that the federal government had devised with the farming community who were sick of having their farm incomes fluctuating according to the quality of the the crops. And in the case of wool the clip. And so the government agreed that they would stabilise incomes by buying all the excess wool, which would have driven the price down for farmers. So the federal government just bought all the wool that the private market wouldn't demand. And if you think around your suburbs, in Collingwood, in Melbourne, in uh, Abbotsford, and on the other side of the river, there were big red brick buildings and they were wool stores. And, uh, of course, when the market was incredibly strong so there was an excess demand for wool in the private market that would drive up the wool price the government would sell it out of the wool stores back into the private market what they were effectively doing was running a buffer stock scheme where the government had the financial capacity to buy whatever wool was in surplus because it issued the currency and could stabilize the price That price stabilisation scheme was pretty effective. It was really criticised by the emerging free market economists but it was a very effective mechanism. If you want to stabilise farm incomes, that was a good method. And I said to myself during that lecture, I can still remember the day, that uh, what the federal government was effectively doing was running a full employment of war scheme. Well, if you're interested in macro, that means then you can uh, convert the wool to people and you've got a buffer stock employment scheme. My main honours research was on the Phillips curve, which became my main PhD research, uh, and my main master's research, pretty excessive. And what I understood that uh, this buffer stock employment scheme really flattened the Phillips curve. We're talking about flattening the curve these days in viruses. Well, MMT flattens the Phillips curve. Uh, What that means for the lay audience is that up until then, economists believed that there was a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, and that if you wanted to have price stability, you had to have a certain amount of unemployment. The task of economic policy was to find the trade-off, and lots of young graduates in economics, particularly those who are statistically oriented, were employed by departments of labour, for example, to study this trade off and estimate it using statistical techniques. And then they would conceptually try to marry the statistical trade off with what they called a social preference function. And the social preference function was how much unemployment are they prepared to tolerate for a certain amount of inflation, or how much inflation are they prepared to tolerate for a certain level of unemployment? They were both bad the twin evils, as they were called. They were both bad. Well, what this buffer stock mechanism told me was that you could have very low unemployment without inflation through the use of these buffer stocks. I wanted to address the issue that we should be prepared as a society to tolerate 8 or 10% unemployment to stabilise inflation. I, I just wasn't prepared to accept that. Buffer stocks are very common in agricultural applications and I started to look into all of that and I realised that we were effectively running buffer stocks but we were just running unemployment buffer stocks. We were using unemployment as a policy tool that you could manipulate upwards if there was inflation pressures to discipline wage demands and uh, to drive firms out of business and stop them pushing up prices whereas in the full employment era, unemployment was a policy target. What the inflation issue was all about was about a buffer stock. And then the question is, well, what's the best buffer stock that you can use to discipline inflation? And it's very clear to me that it's better to have an employment buffer stock, which we now call a job guarantee, uh, relative to an unemployment buffer stock, which is sort of the orthodoxy.
0: You know, Kevin, when you say job guarantee, you really should say it like this. Introducing the amazing, the sensational, the spectacular, counter-cyclical, incontrovertible, anti-inflationary job guarantee.
1: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. A show all about the economics and experience
0: of unemployment and underemployment
1: here on 3CR Community Radio.
2: And then, of course, in the late 60s, the monetarists came along and they challenged the whole concept of a trade-off and said there wasn't any trade-off, and this was this era of the natural rate of unemployment. They exploited, in the early 70s, the disruptions from the OPEC oil crisis where the oil price doubled overnight and we had quite dramatic inflation. And what they said was that that was really caused by governments trying to keep unemployment too low and that eventually people started to expect high unemployment, build that into their wage and price behaviour, and that would create no trade-offs. And you just had to accept that unemployment would go to this natural level where price stability was achieved. So that became the consensus, and, and that's when all of these progressive governments and progressive people started to accept that the government couldn't do very much about unemployment. All it could do was to try to make the labour market more efficient, in inverted commas, and reduce the unemployment rate without causing inflation, but to try to manipulate fiscal policy, spending and taxation, to, say, increase government spending to reduce unemployment rate would only cause inflation. That was the orthodoxy when I came into economics. And so when I say MMT flattens the Phillips curve, the subsequent work that I did... Uh, has shown that if you run an employment buffer stock, you can actually flatten that trade-off down
1: to virtually zero. What I'm understanding from what you're saying is that the orthodox view was that uh, low unemployment would create an environment where employees might be able to push their wage prices up and therefore the wage increases would be fueling inflation.
2: The logic was that with low unemployment, trade unions would become powerful Remember, back in the '60s, uh, there were more vacancies than there were unemployed. If you drove around Clayton and all of these factory areas, there were always vacancy boards up with long lists of jobs. Trade union coverage around the sort of early '70s was 54, 55 percent of the whole workforce. It's now down what into low teens, 13, 12 percent or something. So trade unions were able to influence the bargaining power. And so the argument was that if you had very low unemployment trade unions could push wage demands, and firms, if they had an extended strike, they would run the danger of losing market share. So they had an incentive just to agree to these wage demands and then just pass them on in the form of higher prices. This was the beginning of what we call wage price spirals, where the workers push up the wages firms pass on as prices, the purchasing power equivalent of that wage increase is diminished. It, It goes on and on. If you think back to the late 60s and early 70s, all the public debates were about trade union bargaining power, excessive trade union power, and the profit squeeze. Capital was bleating about how their profit margins were being squeezed. The wage share was too high. It was up around 58 59%. It's now 51% or something. And they wanted governments to do something about attacking the trade union power and forcing a redistribution of national income back to profits. In the late 60s, the captains of industry, you know, the top end of town in Australia, would write to the treasurer. There's letters, you can find them, requesting that in the next budget that they increase unemployment because that would sort out the trade union's and help alleviate the profit squeeze. And there were all these threats in that era that if the government didn't do something about the trade unions and push up unemployment and discipline the workers, then there'd be capital strikes. And uh, if you go back to the Whitlam era, there was actually a capital strike in 1974. Businesses deliberately curtailed business investment spending to force concessions out of the Whitlam government.
1: So employment definitely is a factor in inflation, etc. But it's not so much the unemployment level as how employment is managed. Your model is saying that you can have full employment without inflation if it's managed in a certain way.
2: In the Keynesian period, the dominant view among the orthodox Keynesians, which was the mainstream, was that inflation was really what was called a demand-side phenomenon. And you got inflation if there was too much spending relative to the productive capacity of the economy. Now, in the 60s, the Marxists, because their focus was on class conflict and class struggle, they were looking at the dynamics over the distribution of income. They were formulating conflict theories of inflation which were about the distributional struggle. So the workers wanted to work less and get more pay, and the bosses wanted the workers to work more and pay them less. And that out of that, you got these uh, wage price spirals. Uh, And so when you got the OPEC oil crisis, this was not a demand shock. This was a cost shock, what we call a cost shock, a supply-side inflationary impulse. What that meant was that the existing income that was being produced by the economy in real terms was now less because you had to pay more out to an imported raw material provider, imported oil. The question then was, well, who's going to take that loss, workers or bosses, profits or wages, or are they going to share them out? And there was no mechanism in in that era, there was no institutional framework other than battle it out in collective bargaining to share that loss. And so, you know, you've got workers fighting to preserve their real incomes and you've got bosses fighting to preserve their profit margins. And so there was a battle royal that fueled the inflation. So Keynesians, the mainstream thinkers, had no real understanding of that type of process because they'd only understood inflation as being just too much spending, not a distributional struggle. When Hawke came to government, that was the basis of uh, the wage indexation model under the Accord, to try to have an institutional framework to mediate that conflict over how do you share out the national income. 3 CR Community Radio, 855 AM.
0: So, here you are, too foreign for home,
1: too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What
0: makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong
1: and how do we build a home away from home?
0: Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan.
1: That was a song from our featured artist this week, a band called RVG, another great local band. Uh, that was a song called I Used to Love You off their latest offering called Feral. If you've got two bob, go out and buy local material because the uh, the music industry is suffering from the, um, from the lockdown at the moment, so, so go and buy their product. Now, Anne, we've been speaking about the relationship between inflation and unemployment, and this is something which has been uh, identified. Uh, can, can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: We hear Bill talking about flattening a curve These days we're all familiar with that phrase and we know it's got something to do with a graph. And Bill's talking about flattening a thing called the Phillips curve. So Phillips was a a dude. I think he was an economist back in the 1950s. If you can remember being back in high school and you had these x-axis and the y-axis and you'd have a variable on each one and then you could plot points and see if there was a relationship between the two. So this is what this dude Phillips did back in the day and he put unemployment on one side of the graph and inflation on the other side and there was a relationship between the two, the Phillips curve. When you have a look at these data points plotted on these graphs, you've been camping a few times Kevin, and when you're out there in the bush and you've got these beautiful clear skies... And at night you can see the Milky Way. And you might have someone in the group who thinks they know a bit about stars and they'll start pointing out to you, there's the bear and there's the warrior and there's the the Pisces and there's Aquarius or something. And I'm just looking at these stars going, all I see are random dots (laughs) above my head. I don't see all these pictures. But apparently these economists can look at these dots all over their graphs and, and find things like curves. Bill talking about the Phillips curve and how he'd figured out how to flatten it. (laughs) So he's he's gone and stomped all over um, Phillips curve there. What flattening the curve means is that you break the relationship between the two things so that one's not influencing the other to go up and down. Back in the 50s, nobody questioned the relationship and nobody could see how to break the relationship and they were just stuck with the twin evils. And then a really interesting thing happened in the 1970s, which was this huge external shock came into the economy, the OPEC oil crisis. And what that did is it caused this massive, sudden increase in inflation. I think inflation went up like 400%. Now, why did it cause this price rise throughout the economy? Well, that's because oil is in everything. You know, everything that we manufacture is made with oil, then transporting the stuff is made with oil. Anyway, so oil, you jack up the price of oil and you're going to send a supply-side inflation shock through the economy. Unfortunately, the Keynesians who were holding sway at the time, unfortunately, they weren't ready to explain this external shock which sent poor old Phillips Curve scattered all over his graph (laughs) because what we got now instead of this relationship we've got stagflation which is high unemployment coupled with high inflation and guess who was waiting in the wings with their crazy theory which up until then had been completely ignored it was the monetarists the monetarists like uh, Hayek and Friedman I think of them as like the orcs (laughs) In, the, in this crazy economic story, they're the evil ones. Okay, so the evil Orkumuntists were waiting in the wings, ready to take advantage of a situation that the Keynesians couldn't explain. And what they said was, "Oh, there is no trade-off. Relationship trade-off thing's broken. And instead, what we're going to say is that we can control inflation, not with a trade-off. What we do is we use a buffer stock." And the kind of buffer stock we like is one that's filled with unemployed people. What the mantras are saying is your job, unemployed person, is to sit at home if you're lucky enough to have a home in poverty conditions and sit there and stop inflation from rising. That's your job and we're going to pay you a pittance to do it. And what Bill came along and said was, well, why not fill your buffer stock with employed people?
1: So what you're saying is after the oil shock, the monetarists said that the best way to control inflation was by having a large pool of unemployed. But Bill Mitchell has some different ideas, so uh, let's hear them.
2: I was looking for alternative mechanisms to deal with an inflationary episode that wouldn't result in workers becoming unemployed. My early work, which became part of MMT, was that you didn't necessarily have to accept all of those market price pressures if you wanted to have low unemployment if you ran a buffer stock of jobs. And the logic was, if the government is trying to intervene in a wage price spiral, that battle over income distribution that generates an inflationary pressure, the intervention has to create economic conditions that force the parties to stop. The constitutionally, the government can't dictate it, So they have to create uh, economic pressures, in other words, tighten fiscal policy and tighten monetary policy. When the government does that, it creates unemployment, and the unemployment disciplines the wage demands of workers and stops firms pushing up prices because they lose too many sales. So if you have an inflationary episode and you want to reduce the price-setting motivations of both unions and bosses, so wage push and price push, then tightening fiscal policy and monetary policy would in some form do that. Without doing anything else, you get unemployment. What the buffer stock employment approach revealed to me was that the government had another option. When it tightened policy to discipline an inflationary spiral, instead of forcing the workers into unemployment, it could shift them into a fixed price employment buffer stock give them a job and pay them a fixed wage. And so you're transferring workers from an inflating sector to a fixed price sector. And in doing that, it's not competing for any labour that the private sector wants. The government gives an unconditional offer of jobs to anybody who wants one, but at a fixed wage. By doing that, you can maintain everybody working, but not adding to the inflationary pressures. Now... I don't want the listeners to think that it's full employment with everybody working the number of hours at market prices. We introduced the term loose full employment because the workers in the job guarantee who are employed by the public sector, they've got a socially inclusive wage which allows them to not experience the worst of unemployment. But it's not full employment in that sense, it's loose full employment. And at some point, then the economy would start growing again, growth would return, and the private sector could hire the workers out of the pool. So the pool was never meant to be a long thing. For most workers, they would never be in that pool for very long. Now, the way I've explained it up until now was in the context of an inflationary episode. Now, in the modern era, there is no inflationary. There's deflationary pressures. And so the question then is, well, what function does a job guarantee serve? Well, in the current era, where the non-government sector, the private employers are laying off workers, well, then the job guarantee provides job security, a lifeline. The government can increase government spending in the job guarantee and not contribute any inflationary pressures. Even when the private sector is weak, you don't have to have mass unemployment. That's the context which we think of it now, but it should always be understood that the architecture of the program is a stability framework, not exclusively a job creation framework.
0: And as I've heard people say, by maintaining continuous employment through a job guarantee that helps your workforce to maintain their employability, or in the language of a buffer stock of wool... That helps prevent your stock from degrading.
2: My earlier doctoral work was about hysteresis. And uh, hysteresis is this uh, impact that the longer mass unemployment is allowed to persist, the more difficult it is to get those workers back into the paid workforce. And the reason is that they lose skills. What happens when you have a severe recession is that a lot of the firms that are just hanging on, they've got old data technology, their cost structures tend to be higher than the best practice technology. When the recession comes, they go out of business really quickly because they can't compete. The new investment that leads to the new growth cycle is the best practice technology, and firms that went broke, their capital just disappears. And so workers that had been trained in all of that old capital with skills that are, you know, wonderful skills, working old processes and old machinery and stuff, they have to be retrained. And and some of the older workers find it really hard ever getting back into the labour market. And so you get this problem with detachment from the labour market, then it's harder to get back in. But you also have uh, general skills, basic confidence and self-esteem, and those type of things that entrenched periods of unemployment, social networks for the unemployed start to shrink right down and you become very isolated. And I remember as a young graduate student, I heard a a talk from an American psychologist and they said that one of the huge disadvantages that children inherit if they grow up in jobless households is that they inherit the job instability. And so one of the intergenerational advantages of full employment was that children learn about work. They see their parents getting up, going to work, and that structures a sort of sense of purpose and self-esteem that you take into your own adult life. And so one of the advantages of a job guarantee instead of unemployment is that the kids just see their parents going to work And so the intergenerational costs of unemployment are significantly reduced by running a job guarantee scheme.
0: That brings up one of the things I find so insidious about what you might call the neoliberal diagnosis of the economy, because we seem to agree on the pathologies as you describe the intergenerational unemployment and the skills loss. But the thing is the neoliberals seem to see the cause as residing in the individual and not so much as the policy settings. And once you do that, it seems like you take a blame-the-victim approach.
2: Yeah. We all believed that we could do something when we finished school because our parents were all doing something and that was because there was full employment. If I had grown up on that estate in this current system, then who knows where we would have ended up as kids because our parents would have been unemployed, there would have been family instability, you know, family breakdown, increased alcohol and substance abuse, increased crime rates, psychological problems, increased mental health and physical health problems. Even though we were poor, our parents could work. And that's why my main career has been devoted to issues relating to full employment and how we maintain full employment. You saw a shift in the narrative in the 70s. We started to get this idea that uh, we're all individuals. We believed that unemployment was individual lethargy, poor educational decisions made by individuals, that it was up to the individuals to do something about that. You know, even the nomenclature changed. It will surprise a lot of people to know that the person who introduced the sort of double bludger terminology into the Australian narrative was Clyde Cameron, who was Minister for Labor under Whitlam. And that was in the late part of the Whitlam era where they were becoming their liberal. You know, we have this nomenclature that reinforces this blame the victim approach, when the consensus prior to that was it was obvious that if there wasn't enough jobs... It was because there wasn't enough spending and that the government was able to do something about that.
0: Kevin, we are the good news show because there's Bill telling us the good news. The federal government has the capacity to employ anybody that
1: it wants. Well, the federal government has the capacity. I don't think they know that they have the capacity. Currently, we have unemployment benefits as a safety net for uh, our unemployed. What Bill's suggesting with his universal job guarantee is a far more productive and inclusive scheme that would have many benefits for society uh, socially and economically. This is not a work for the Dole scheme. It's a a non-compulsory position that's offered by local government or government in general. The work could be Uh, A variety of things, including aged care, rebuilding bushfire uh, ravaged areas, uh, environmental tree planting. So it's basic work at a basic minimum wage. I'm guessing around forty grand a year, about eight hundred bucks a week. That sounds uh, about right. So um, it's uh, it's definitely better than unemployment benefits.
0: You just have to use your imagination, really. So the big picture is that this thing that's called the job guarantee. It does two things. And one thing it does is it helps to manage inflation. But you only need to manage inflation when you've got inflation, as Bill says. And at the moment, we don't got inflation. What we got is high unemployment. So then the job guarantee does its second thing, which it, it, it becomes a job creation program. And the thing is, like you say, very different from this horrible, horrible work for the doll, of which I've had personal experience. The job guarantee is offering real work, meaningful work, work that needs to be done in the community. The job guarantee scheme doesn't compete with the private sector, but it does offer people meaningful, real work so that they are actually included in the community.
1: So it's a proper wage for a proper job, um, and it's, it's, it's probably full-time, but it might be scaled to you know, pro rata, whatever that is, um, but you're being respected as a worker um, both through your wage and through your conditions, uh, and that is important because, as you say, it's, it's not going to be competing with the private sector, but it's going to keep your job ready for the private sector uh, should a, a better paying or a, a more appropriate job come up.
0: Yeah, and that's why uh, Bill Mitchell's calling that loose full employment, not full employment. And it's loose because your engineer won't be being employed as an engineer, so not at their full skill set and not at their usual wage, but they also won't be on $250 a week trying to scrape by.
1: Look, this could be the beginning of a long and interesting conversation, but we need to wrap up, Anne, because uh, time's running out and is coming up next. Uh, Bill Mitchell has a book out. We need to give that a plug. What's the book called?
0: And you wouldn't believe what the title of the book is.
1: Uh, tell me, Anne.
0: <laughs> Macroeconomics. <laughs> Macro-
1: Macroeconomics by...
0: By Bill Mitchell, uh, Martin Watts and Randall Ray, all professors of economics who understand modern monetary theory. And hopefully we'll get Martin Watts on the show one day too.
1: That'd be good. Anyway, we've got to go. It's been uh, been an interesting show. This is all about the universal job guarantee. You can hear this uh, on podcast from 3CR. Um, But uh, we're going to leave you and we'll see you again
2: in a couple of weeks' time. See you later, Anne.
0: See you then, Kevin. Bye-bye.
2: This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station 3CR with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back program. Great program. Great guests.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
1: Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on Three CR.
0: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin.
1: And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine.
0: Oh no, I insist. The pleasure was mine.
1: Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was a very pleasurable for me.
0: Oh no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured.
1: You looked like you were having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you. But I'm just wondering whether I, have it I, unmuted, it? I, have I had more fun than you did. I had a take lot of fun, and it was very pleasurable.